How, how many of you have raised someone from the dead? Yeah, a couple of hands, but I'm not referring to getting out of bed this morning. That's <laughs> like, I, can't, I actually have never raised someone from the dead. I've done the opposite. I've prayed for someone who was sick and they died, but that's not as good. Welcome to Church of the Rock from Winnipeg. Stay tuned to this week's thought-provoking message from Pastor Mark Hughes. Today I'm starting a brand new series called Simply Supernatural. And what we're going to be doing is taking an uncomplicated look at the simple supernatural. When I look at Jesus and his disciples in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, you know what I see? I see a group of people that were solving complicated problems simply supernaturally. And uh, it didn't matter what the problem was. If they were caught in a storm, they simply calmed the storm. If someone was sick, they simply divinely healed them. If someone was you know, possessed by demons, they simply delivered them in Jesus' name. If someone was dead... They simply raised them back to life again. I mean, and then Jesus told us to go do the same. He said, go and preach the gospel and heal the sick and, and cleanse the lepers. And he told us even to raise the dead. And, you know, that doesn't seem simple to me. It seems elusive. It seems inaccessible. Yet I look, I read the story. I see what Jesus did. How many remember this story when he goes into Capernaum and, and he encounters Jairus, who was the, the ruler of the synagogue there, and his daughter was sick, and she actually died. And the people were inconsolable. They're wailing, they're weeping, there was no consoling them. And anyone who's ever lost a child in their family knows exactly what's going on, the moment, the grief and the pain that they're experiencing. And Jesus comes by and says, it's ridiculous. He says, oh, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. Really? It, 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 that seems so cruel and so insensitive in the moment, unless he had a different plan, which he did, right? I mean, the, the, the poor girl is dead. The family is grieving, and Jesus comes by and pulls his Miracle Max routine. You know what I'm talking about? Woo-hoo-hoo, look who knows so much, eh? It just so happens your daughter is only mostly dead. And there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. With mostly dead, is slightly alive. With all dead, well, there's only one thing to do. Go through their clothes, look for loose change. Right? <laughs> you all know that. Princess Bride, Billy Crystal, my favorite. Uh, but so Jesus comes and says, she's, she's, not, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. Goes into the room and simply raises her from the dead. How, how many of you have raised someone from the dead? Yeah, a couple of hands, but I'm not referring to getting out of bed this morning. That's <laughs> like, I, can't, I actually have never raised someone from the dead. I've done the opposite. I've prayed for someone who was sick and they died. But that's not as good, is it? And so what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at the fact that maybe we can't, I mean, you know, theoretically we can raise the dead. But, but even if we can't in practicality, we can be doing a whole lot better than we are. And we could take this thing to another level because he said the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So my message this morning is entitled 
supercharge me. And because what Jesus does is he wants to supercharge us. The, the car guys, how many car guys in the room? How many car guys? You call yourself a car guy. The car guys in the room know what supercharging is. Supercharging is kind of a crazy thing where they put, basically put an air compressor on the top of your motor and they pump air into your, into your motor. See, the fuel's not the problem. It's easy to add more fuel to an engine. All you have to do is increase the jets or increase the injectors, and you can send more fuel. The big problem, the limiting factor is air. You can't get enough air into the internal combustion motor to create more horsepower. So what they do is they put these pumps on top of the motor called a supercharger, and they pump air into it. Here's an example here. I love this GTO, what he did with it. That, by the way, is, if you look at it carefully, that's a double supercharger. It's, it's a great device. Your car goes really fast. You cannot see oncoming traffic. So, so it is a bit hazardous to your, to your health. And, uh, and what happens with supercharging is you can increase the horsepower of a motor, doesn't matter what it is, by some 50%, depending on the supercharger. So now what they're doing in the automotive industry is they're supercharging motors, they're putting smaller motors into cars, particularly European ones and exotics. They're supercharging them. You know there's a supercharged Cooper Mini? Do I really need my Mini supercharged? You can get snowmobiles that are supercharged, you can get outboards that are supercharged, you can get Sea-Doo's that are supercharged. It's what they're doing because people are demanding this. Uh, my son went out and bought an Audi S4, anybody know what an Audi S4 is? Not to be confused with the A4. Here's his car, picture of his car. There it is, beautiful red, and it's the S4. See, the, a, a, the S4, the S stands for supercharged, and the S is a supercharged motor exactly the same as the A4. And what it does is it takes it from 261 horsepower to 349 horsepower, and Another $10,000 and you can have a supercharged car. My son really needed one because he works at home and goes to the grocery store once a week and he needs to get there really fast and burn 15 liters of gasoline every time he goes. But here's the real point I'm making about this. I think spiritually, spiritually, every single one of us needs to be supercharged. We are not doing it being naturally aspirated. We need the wind of the Spirit. And let me tell you something really interesting about the word Spirit. We always talk about the Holy Spirit and the Spirit in Scripture. That word is used hundreds and hundreds of times. In the Greek language, it is the word pneuma, spelt with a P, where we get our English words pneumatic, pneumatic tires, pneumatic drills, pneumatic tools. What does pneumatic mean? Air. Powered is what it means. We have the disease, pneumonia, spelt with the same word, which is the disease or infection of the airways. And here's what's interesting about this word spirit. It is the word pneuma. It is translated in scripture sometimes spirit, but sometimes as wind, sometimes as breath. It's even air. And so every time you see that word wind or air or breath in the New Testament, it's actually the word Numa, and so when he says the Holy Spirit, he's actually saying the holy wind or the holy breath. And this makes all the difference in the world because, see, what you need to be is supercharged with the holy wind. And you need to be supercharged spiritually, and it will transform your life. So here's what Paul tells us about this. He says that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, what, who knows how this goes? 
dwells in you. Everybody say dwells in you. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. Paul says this. He says, you know, the Holy Spirit no longer dwells in temples made with hands. But know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you are in Christ, his spirit dwells in you. Say dwells in you. What do you think? Take a stab at it. What do you think Paul's driving at here about the Holy Spirit? Where, where do you think he thinks the, the Holy Spirit lives? <laughs> this is not a trick question. <laughs> his Spirit dwells in you. If you are in Christ, his Holy Spirit dwells in you. Why is Paul making such a big deal about this? Why is he going on and on about this? Because where did the Holy Spirit dwell in the Old Testament? In you? In people? You know there's not one single example of someone in the Old, Old Testament where the Holy Spirit dwelt in them? It says, and the Holy Spirit came upon Samson, and he killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, and the Holy Spirit came upon Ezekiel, and he prophesied. Not one indication of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Where did the Holy Spirit dwell? In the temple made with hands. And why did the Holy Spirit not dwell in people? Because it would kill them. I'm not kidding. In the Old Testament, it would kill you. We have stories about it. We know that the, the, the Holy Spirit dwelt in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, behind the veil, in the Ark of the Covenant, and that place so isolated from humanity because man, man in his sinful state, if he were to come in the presence of the Holy God, the Holy Spirit, it would kill him. And Paul says, know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he no longer dwells in temples made with hands. How could this be? How could this be? And it has everything to do with the work of the cross because what the work of the cross did was made you not righteous in your own self but righteous in him that his spirit could come and dwell in you. You know, I think one of my favorite parts of this is what happens with Jesus' disciples. And I ask this question, if you've ever taken our foundations class that we talked about this morning, if you ever take our foundations class, I, 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 this is going to be a little refresher. I always ask this question. I say, what was the moment that the disciples actually became Christians? Like literal Christians, where they crossed the threshold from, from death to life. What was that moment? Was it, and I, and I ask a bunch of rhetorical questions, and I say, was it when Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men? Was it when he, when he sent them out two by two and he says, freely, you've received, freely give, go and preach the gospel? Or, or was it when he said, this is my body and he break, break my body and drink my blood? Was, it, was that the moment? Well, no, here's what we, we know. Because Paul says that if you are in Christ, his spirit dwells in you, then that means that it had to be a moment after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would you agree with that? Had to have been. Had to have been. They could not have been saved. They could not have been on their way to heaven unless he had first died for their sins. In fact, not just died for, for their sins, but had to be after he had risen from the dead because he died for our sins, but he rose to give us newness of life. And we actually can find the, the moment, if you were studious enough, and you went and dug around, you'd actually find it, and it's in John chapter 20. And in John chapter 20, it's the day of the resurrection. Jesus has, has risen, and he's heading towards the home. And the disciples were in a house behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. And Jesus just appears in the room. And he uh, doesn't go through the door, doesn't go through the windows. Who knows how he got in there? It doesn't really matter. There he is. And he shows his hands and he shows his feet and the nail holes to, to his disciples. Thomas says, my Lord and my God, I believe. Remember this part. And then he says, my peace, my peace I give you. And then he said this, and I'll throw it up on the screen. He said, and when he had said this, he breathed on them 
and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. That's the first moment, the first sign of it we see. It had to have happened after the death and the resurrection. This, I believe, was the moment where he came and restored in them the breath of life. Because you all remember how man was created. How was man created? Adam. The dirt. Ladies, this explains everything about your husband you need to know. He was made from the dirt. Cut him some slack. And so, so he, he, he made man out of the dust and he formed him. And who knows after he formed the man and he held this lifeless creature in his hand, what did he do next? Who remembers? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living being. And then he says to Adam, he's, he's a wonderful creation, but he's not too bright. And he says to Adam, now here's the deal. You've got one little rule, the tree in the midst of the garden. Don't eat of that tree for the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. To which Adam goes, what tree? Where's the tree? And we see him at the tree just moments later, eating of the fruit. Now, here, here's my question for you. He said, the day in which you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. Did he die physically? No, we know he lived 930 years. So if he didn't die physically, how did he die? He died spiritually. And what happened with mankind from that moment forth, and what is the great tragedy of the fall is this, is that man became the walking dead. Man became a zombie. And though he had physical life in his body, he was separated from the presence of God. And that's why God was on the outside looking in. And that's why God had to dwell in a temple made with hands because he couldn't dwell in sinful man. And thousands of years later, Jesus dies on the cross. He rises from the dead. And the first thing he does is he repeats what God did to Adam in the garden. And he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. How good is this? And he redeemed what happened at the fall, and man now had the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. Now, that story would be great just by itself. And we know that, that every single person, once they come to Christ, now has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. But then something very confusing happens next, and this is where I'm taking you. Some of you have noticed I haven't got to my text yet today. This has all been the introduction. And, uh, and then what we pick it up is we, we find this in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. We know the time frame. It's exactly 37 days after John 20 that I just quoted to you. So 37 days later, we know that Jesus kind of hung around for about 40 days and, and, you know, did different things in his resurrected state. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, this is what he says. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem... But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jumping down to verse 8, it says, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So I'm a little bit confused. Did they or did they not receive the Holy Spirit in John chapter 20? Why is he now telling them? He says, I want you to go wait in Jerusalem for you shall receive the promise of the Father and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. What is he talking about now? And he explains it. He said, just as John baptized you with 
water, he refers back to the baptism of John the Baptist, and he says, just as John baptized you with water, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and power. So what we know this is this baptism with the Holy Spirit is a separate and a subsequent experience to being indwelt. Am I right? I mean, we already saw they've been, they're already indwelt. He already breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And now we find them in this state where he's saying, I'm not done with you yet. I have more for you. And you may be indwelt with the Holy Spirit, but in a few days, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it's going to be even better. So I'm going, to, I'm going to illustrate this because he gave the example of John baptizing with water. I brought a bottle of water. Don't you like water? Aren't you thirsty now that you've seen this water? I'm thirsty just thinking about it. So, so I want to illustrate this, uh, using water as the example. If I was going to be indwelt with this water, what would I need to do with it? Drink it. Mmm. Delicious. So would it be fair to say I am now indwelt with water? Yes or no? <laughs> okay, <laughs> thank you. Now... So uh, that how, that's how one gets indwelt. However, if I was going to baptize you with water, what would I have to do with the water? What would I have to do with the water? I'd have to put it on you. <laughs> oh, you feel so refreshed, don't you? Aren't you glad? <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, she said. She's so glad she came to church. And, 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 and it's a different experience, <laughs> wasn't it? <laughs> Sorry about that sweet coat. <laughs> and and uh, it's a different experience. The indwelling is when the spirit's on the inside. The baptism is when the, the spirit is on the outside. So what we're going to discover is this, is that, that Jesus said, I gave you my Holy Spirit to dwell in you, but now I'm going to give you another experience of this, and I am going to baptize you. I'm going to immerse you in my spirit. So let's go read the story. He tells them to wait in Jerusalem. They wait there 10 days. We find it. It's in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Let's find out what happens. So when, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, now, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing, mighty wind. Wind. What Greek word? Pneuma. It's the word pneuma. And it says, a, 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 a sound from heaven, a rushing, mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire. One sat upon each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude gathered and was confused because they heard everyone speaking in his own language. Now here's what I don't want you to miss. He said... I'm going to baptize you with the Spirit the same way John baptized you with water. And so t 10 days later, they're in, they're in Jerusalem. They're in the upper room. There's 120 of them in this room. And a wind comes and fills, not them, but fills the room. And because they were in the room, they were immersed in the Spirit. And they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. So what it was was a separate experience, an experience that changed the history of the church forever. They went forth from that place in power. And the initial sign of this 
was they all began to speak languages they didn't even know. It says they tumbled out into the streets, and there was people in the streets from every nation under heaven and every tongue. And those people in the streets heard them speaking these languages that there was no way in God's green earth these Galileans would have ever been able to know or have learned all those languages. Yet somehow, some way, supernaturally, they were speaking in, the Bible calls it tongues. It's just simply speaking in another language that you do not know and did not learn. Theologically, it's called glossolalia. And uh, it has been an experience that's been happening in the church for 2,000 years. It began here on the day of Pentecost. Now, all that is is the sign of something. It's not the essence of it. I'm going to talk about the essence of it in a moment. But it is the initial evidence that we see. That's, this is the reason we know they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They were speaking other, in other languages that they didn't know. And there were people in the streets who knew those languages that actually couldn't figure out what was going on because they were these Galileans and these, these Jews were speaking languages they shouldn't have otherwise known. The important thing is this, and this is what I don't want you to miss. Here's the, the whole essence of it. It's not so that we can speak another language. You can learn a language. The essence of this is that God is trying to empower us and to give us his Holy Spirit to supercharge us so that we would be able to pray and minister to other people and bypass the limitations of this 10-pound dead weight sitting on your head. See, our brains are the things that get in the way. And if we could turn that off for a moment, because Paul says, when I pray in a tongue, my understanding is unfruitful. I don't understand a word I'm saying. And so if we could turn that off, then everything else changes. And you see, here's what's really important. I'm going to take the last couple of minutes to talk about the essence of this. In that it's not really so much the, the tongues or the language, and he will, does and wants to give you that. The essence of it is this, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So I'm going to give you three quick things in closing. I won't spend a lot of time on them. The first thing is this, because I'm calling this the supercharging of the Spirit. The supercharging of the Holy Spirit builds us up spiritually, number one. Number two, supercharging of the Holy Spirit allows us to pray more effectively. Number three, supercharging of the Holy Spirit causes us to pray more powerfully. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 4, he says, if I pray in my spirit, I edify myself. Do you know what edify means? Anybody know? Build up, supercharging. That's what, that's what that literally means. It means to be supercharged. And one of the things that happens when we begin to pray in the spirit is that we get supercharged. There's just something that happens. And this is why you go into these charismatic type churches, Pentecostal churches, whatever you want to call them, spirit and power churches, and you think, what is wrong with that guy? I've had people with bring their kids to this church and have turned to their parents and said, Mommy, what if he comes off that stage? Will he hurt me? I, I frighten them because <laughs> I get so excited. And this is what you see amongst people who are in, empowered by the Spirit. They just get so passionate and so excited, and they pray at another level that is extraordinary. And you may or may not know this, but the Spirit-empowered churches in the world are growing four times faster than any other churches in the world right now. Did you know that? All these places that I talk about where, we, where we're church planting in Ethiopia and Cambodia and Afghanistan, places where you would not expect there to be the kind of church growth that we are seeing today. It's extraordinary. We, we tell you these stories at the pie auction. 
Every last one of these churches is spirit-empowered churches. It is very, very hard to build a church under a tree of thousands of people. But you can do it because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So, so the first thing is this, is that the supercharging of the Spirit allows us to, what was that point I was making again? It was really good. <laughs> to build us up spiritually. The second, the second point was this, that allows us to pray more effectively. How many of you remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 8? Tell me if you can relate with this. He says, we do not know what to pray as we ought. How many of you struggle with that? You don't always know what to pray. I'm a pastor. You know I get paid to, the, to do this. I still don't know what to pray as I ought. And he says, we do not know how to pray as we ought. Therefore, the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us. So this is kind of interesting that the Holy Spirit will actually lead us to pray far more effectively than we can ever pray on our own. So I want to tell you a little crazy story about this. So my mom's sitting right over there. And a number of years ago, she went on a mission trip to India. And before she left, she said to me this. She's a little nervous, never been to India. And she says, Mark, will you pray for me every day? To which I said, yes. Do you know what it means when your pastor tells you that he's going to pray for you every single day? Nothing. I'm not going to pray for you every single day. So don't even think. <laughs> if you want me to pray for you, you better get me to pray for you right then and there. Because I'm going to forget to pray for you tomorrow. Uh, I'm just being honest. Because hundreds of people ask me. But anyway, it was my mother. So I said, yes, I'll pray for you every day. So she went off to India. And guess what I did? I forgot. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, God, she's in God's hands. She certainly doesn't need my help. And so anyway, so she was gone. And there was only one day in the whole three weeks she was gone that I prayed for. And I wasn't even going to pray for her. Here's the story. It was 9 o'clock in the morning. It was a Tuesday morning. I'll never forget. And I was uh, praying. And I did not know what to pray for as I ought. And so I was just praying in the spirit. I was just praying in my prayer language. And all of a sudden, I had this sense of danger and foreboding for my mother in India. And I remember, oh, yeah, I said I was going to pray for her every day. I better pray for her today because then I can tell her I pray for her. And so I started praying for her, and this burden became intense that there was something really serious and, and that she was actually in danger. So I prayed for probably 20 minutes. I didn't know what was going on, you know, whatever. After about 20 minutes, it lifted. I went on, went out for coffee. And uh, so then I forgot all about it. So... Uh, a week later, she gets back, and she says, I, you won't believe what happened. I'm so glad you were praying for me. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I was praying for you. She says, so this is what happened. We were in the city of Bhopal, and we were doing a crusade. And uh, what had happened was we had about 20 or 30,000 people all gathered in a soccer field on the pitch. We had this wooden stage set up, and the evangelist, the, the preacher, was preaching on the stage. She said, I was down right in front of the stage, working the crowd, ministering to people, and we got attacked by a local terrorist group called the SSS Samaj, a radical Hindu terrorist group. And they didn't like us being there as Christians. And they came with homemade bombs. And they were standing behind in the parking lot behind the stage, and they were throwing homemade bombs at the speaker on the stage. They were missing the stage, and the bombs were landing in the crowd. And my mother is down there in the crowd, crowd and the first bomb came down, and about 20 feet from where my mother was, a bomb landed right on the head of a young woman and exploded and killed her. And she dropped dead just 20 feet from my mother. Another bomb fell somewhere else, and a third bomb fell and dropped right at my mother's feet. 
and went and fizzled and did not explode. And she knew in that moment that her life had been spared. And when she got back, she said, I'm so glad you were praying for me. And to which I said, well, I didn't really pray for you that much, only once. And then I said, I've got a question for you. When did this happen? She said, last Tuesday. I said, what time last Tuesday? And she said, 8 o'clock at night, 8 o'clock p.m. Do you know what time it is in Winnipeg when it's 8 p.m. in India? It's 9 o'clock in the morning on that same Tuesday, the very moment that the Holy Spirit led me to pray for my mother, a bomb fizzled at her feet. Because we do not know what to pray as we ought. Therefore, the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us. I would have never thought on that. Can't take any credit for that whatsoever. I'm adult, but the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. And that's why you need the Holy Spirit. So the supercharging builds us up. The supercharging allows us to pray more effectively. And the last and the final thing, and I'm just going to crash land it with this and talk about it next week. The Holy Spirit allows us to pray more powerfully. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. How many of you would like a little piece of this? Amen. Everybody in the room say, Lord, supercharge me. Let's stand together, shall we? If you'd like a booklet to help you understand more about God's gift of forgiveness and reconciliation through Jesus Christ, please contact us and we'd be happy to send you a free copy of the Book of Hope. Visit our website at www.churchoftherock.ca. Thank you for watching and God bless you.